good morning again to you. And um, I hope you recognized how weird that song was. Did you pick up how weird it was? I was talking to Johnny before the service, and um, that is really in politically incorrect. When something goes wrong, what do we do? We blame God. If there's a hurricane or a natural disaster, we call it an act of what about when we have a bountiful crop? Or we have something really good in our life. Do we ever call that an act of God? Never. We write books. Why do bad things happen to? But have you ever seen a book entitled, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? But did you hear the song? Why me, Lord? What have I ever done well, when we say the words, why me, Lord, it's usually when something bad has happened, some tragedy. Why me, Lord? Why did you do this to me? But the song, written by Chris Christopherson, who went through some tough things, he said, why, why me, Lord? Why would you give me these pleasures that I don't deserve? That's really unusual, but incredibly beautiful. So thank you, quartet. I, I, um, I asked that they'd sing that song, and. Thankfully, it was part of their repertoire, and I'm so glad about that. Well, this morning, I'm going to take you on a trip. We're going to go to three places. First of all, we're going to, um, we're going to visit a morgue. Now, many of you probably don't like going to a morgue. I've been to one, and I'll tell you about that in a bit. And when we go to the morgue, we're going to see God, and God is going to be a coroner. We're going to find God as a coroner, and he's going to do a spiritual autopsy on us as human beings. And then he's going to issue his report. And it's not going to be pretty. But after that, we're going to go to a museum. We're going to go to a museum, actually a museum that I once visited in a place called Guanajuato, Mexico. And we'll tell you about that in a bit. But then at this particular museum, it's called the Museum of the Mummies. We're going to see God again, but this time he's not going to be a coroner. He's going to be a life giver. He's going to take a bunch of spiritual mummies and make them spring to life. But then we're going to go from there to a workshop. And in the workshop, we're going to see God at work again, this time not as a, a coroner, and not as a life giver, but now he's going to be simply a, a, a potter. He's going to work these lumps of clay, which happen to be us, and turn us into something of incredible, incredible beauty. This, by the way, is one of the best known passages in all of the Bible. If you ask most Christians what's the most famous verse in the Bible, they would say John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But if you ask people what's the second most favorite, most favorite verse in the Bible, you'd probably have them say Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any of you should boast. That's perhaps the second best known verse in the Bible, verses in the Bible. So today we're going to look at one of the most important passages. And so we're going to go, first of all, to a morgue, and then to a museum, and then to a workshop. Let's start with the morgue. Well, the first and, frankly, the only morgue I ever visited, I did when I was 18 years of age. It was kind of weird, but let me tell you what happened. I was 18 years of age, and a buddy and myself from southern Wisconsin went to Madison, Wisconsin, our state capital, 
to attend the basketball tournaments in March of that year, as I recall. It just so happened that in Madison, my cousin was in medical school. And we went to see my cousin before we went to the basketball games. And my cousin said, hey, do you guys want to see a surgery? You can't believe it. But back in the 70s, this could happen. This was 1970. We said, sure. Two 18-year-olds said, sure. So he snuck us into the operating room. We were all gowned up. The only thing you could see was our eyes. We had booties. We had hats. We had masks. We had everything on. And we watched a lumbar laminectomy, a back surgery, until the doctor, because it was a teaching hospital, there were all these people around, medical students watching, the doctor started going, let's uh, identify this nerve. And here we were two 18-year-olds. We didn't have a clue what any of that was, and we got out of there with my, my cousin. And then he said to me, do you guys want to see my cadaver? I said, okay. So he brought us into the room where he was working on his cadaver, and we saw his cadaver. And then he said, would you guys like to see the morgue? So, okay. So we went to the morgue. We went to the morgue, and there were all these, uh, like a, a bunch of doors, and they pulled these carts out, and there were dead bodies on these carts. And so it was kind of gross, but I, before that, I think I had wanted to be a doctor. No more, after a while after going to the morgue. So um, we saw the, these dead bodies, and of course those bodies were there um, so that the, um, the, the, the coroner could perform autopsies to determine the, the cause of death. And uh, I was radically introduced as an 18-year-old to physically dead bodies in 1970. But today I'm going to introduce you to spiritually dead bodies. Now, we live in a society today, and especially on this particular week, when you have somebody who's dead but alive, we call them a zombie. Thank you. We call them zombies. And the Bible's going to say, that's you. We are actually spiritual zombies, which means we are dead but alive. We're both. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You. Who's you? Well, he's talking to the people in Ephesus. Those are just normal human beings, just like us. And if Paul was here writing this to this church, Wheat Ridge, he'd say, you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So God, in this verse, is operating as a spiritual coroner who's doing an autopsy on our spirits, not our physical bodies, our spiritual bodies. And he looks at us, he does the autopsy, and he says, you're dead. Why? Well, then he says, did you see that? Because of your trespasses, those are the things you shouldn't have done that you did do, and your sins. Those are things you should have done that you didn't do. We call them sins of commission and sins of omission. And it says, you're spiritually dead because your sin has killed you spiritually. There are many things, all of us, that we should have done, that we know we should have done, but we didn't do them. And boy, are there a lot of things that we know we shouldn't have done, but we do them all the time. And the Bible calls that sin. 
And the Bible says the wages of sin, what we get paid for our sin is death. So the coroner looks at our bodies and says, oh, they're dead. But then, of course, a good coroner has to answer the question, what did they die from? Well, we know, first of all, we died because of our sin, but it gets way worse than that. Look at the next verse, verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the autopsy report says the cause of death is sin, but we sin because we have walked, which means we have lived under the control of the ones, the very things that kill us spiritually and hold us in bondage. And the Bible says there are three things that kill us. It calls them the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world. You see, the world system is so organized that it leads us not toward God, but away from God. Do you think when you watch TV this afternoon and those advertisements point up, they're trying to entice you to do good things? Most of the time they're not. They want, to buy, you want, they want you to buy things you don't need. They want you to drink things you shouldn't drink. They want you to do things you shouldn't do all the time. They constantly, that's the world, the whole world system is organized to kind of lead us not toward God, but away from God. But that's not the bad part. We don't want to follow God either, our flesh. Our flesh cries out for things that are contrary to God many times. And it's worse, because we have a great opponent who hates our guts, our spiritual guts, Satan. And so here we find ourselves spiritually dead because we're caught up in a world system that entices us to go away from God, our flesh leads us away from God, and Satan's trying to spiritually enslave us and kill us. But it gets worse, way worse. If you think that's bad enough, you're wrong, because it's still much, much worse. Here's what verse 3 says. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So the coroner's report says this, the, they are spiritually dead because of their sin, because their sin has caught them following the, the dictates of the world system, the desires of their flesh, and Satan is leading them. And worse yet, because we are spiritually dead and we have gone the opposite way of God, we have aroused the wrath, the holy wrath of God. Now that's terrible. Let me summarize. Human sin, our sin, has created a race of spiritual zombies, that's us, who are enslaved by the world system under the leadership of Satan, who is the Pied Piper of hell, 
who are incredibly egocentric, that's who we are, and by our sin we have aroused the holy wrath of God. That's the autopsy report. Isn't that beautiful? But we're alive. We're zombies. We are, are physically alive, but spiritually we're dead. Now, you might say, well, is that just what this passage says? No, the whole Bible says it. This is what Paul says in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. As I mentioned before with, with, with Johnny, we, before the service, we were talking, and, and the, 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 the magnificent thing about Christianity, contrary to anything else in this world, is we don't find God. Because last I knew, corpses aren't out looking for God. Corpses are dead. They cannot look for God. They cannot find God. So our only hope is that God will find us. None of us as human beings can say, I found God. No, you didn't find God. God found you, and God found me. It's a pretty bad situation. By the way, did you catch that last part? Because we have sinned grievously against God, and we, file, we follow the Pied Piper of hell, Satan, and we're dominated by the world system, and we basically live trying to please our own flesh, we have aroused the holy wrath of God. Because you see, God cannot be God if he is not deeply bothered by our sin. I don't know if you know, but there's a major denomination in America today who was redoing their hymnal for their worship services. And one of the hymns they wanted to put in their hymnal was the hymn, I hope we sing it here. Rebecca, do we? In Christ Alone, do we sing that some? Yeah. Beautiful. It's a, it's, a, it's a contemporary, it's not been written many years ago, beautiful hymn. But in that hymn, it's got the, it's a, where on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what we sing. But this major denomination in America said, no, no, God loves us. There is no wrath of God. So they wrote to the authors of the hymn and said, can we change the line from where on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We don't want that one because we don't believe in that. Could we say instead, where on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Isn't that cute? And they wrote to the authors and the authors said, no, you cannot change it. And what did they do? They dropped it from their hymnal. They would not put it in there. Well, the wrath of God doesn't mean God's mad at us. That's not at all what it means. That's nonsense. Nor does it mean God has emotional outbursts. He doesn't have that. His wrath is not like ours at all. He just simply, because of his nature of being holy and just and good, he must oppose evil. And of course, that's, that's us. Elizabeth Elliot is one of my favorite authors, actually. She wrote this. Jesus began at once to teach his new disciples. The Sermon on the Mountainside was his starting point. 
And it was a bombardment of seemingly impossible requirements. There is no hope for any of us until we confess our helplessness to be Christians. Then we are in a position to receive grace. So long as we see ourselves as competent, we do not qualify. You see, the Bible says human beings have no spiritual heartbeat. Our culture says, follow your heart. Why would you follow a heart that has no beat, no heartbeat at all? Our, the Bible says human beings are spiritual zombies. But our culture says no. Oh, we're all God's children. You see, the Bible says human beings are constitutionally unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. Our culture says, oh, just let your conscience be your guide. The Bible says on our own, we do not choose to follow God. And our culture says, find your way to God. The Bible says there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And our culture says, oh, God helps those who help themselves. You see, to my knowledge, and I've studied most world religions, Christianity is the only religion in the world that paints this dire portrait of human nature. The only one. All other religions, all other philosophies teach that human beings are either basically good or morally neutral. We can choose good and we may not choose it. The Bible says no. We are spiritually dead. That leaves us in a bad place, doesn't it? That's a rather, rather bleak picture to think that we are spiritually dead. But that is only the visit to the morgue. That's not the end of the passage. Because from there, we go to a museum. This is a museum I visited in 1989. I was on a, a trip through Mexico to visit some missionaries. And we came to this town called Guanajuato. Any of you been to Guanajuato? Yes. Isn't it a fascinating place? Did you go to the museum? Um, it, in Guanajuato, they have what's called the Museo de las Momias, the Museum of the Mummies. Guanajuato is, is a, a beautiful old city. It is extremely dry, the climate, and it has like silver or something in the air, such that they found that bodies don't decompose. So people would die and they would put their bodies in a crypt, but when they would not pay the tax that the crypt required year after year, they would remove the bodies and they threw them into the dump. But the bodies didn't decompose. And so you had all of these mummies, and at some point they took these mummies from the dump and they put them into a museum, and they're standing like this. And I've been there. It's really, really weird to go into the museum of the mummies, but there are all these standing mummies with skin on and hair. Some of them you could see have knife wounds in them. Others of them um, have broken bones and other body parts that are all missing. But now, what would you think if somebody walked into the Museum of the Mummies in Guanajuato, Mexico, and said, Come alive! And all these mummies started to move. 
And by the way, these mummies, and many of them, they know the story. They tell, well, this person was gotten in a knife fight, and they were killed, and that's why you see the stab wound in their side. And all of these mummies sprung to life. Well, that's what happened. Look at verse 4. And I think these are probably the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Remember, we just had the coroner's report. Spiritually dead as a doornail. But the next words, but God. God isn't about to leave us as spiritually dead as doornails. He's going to do something. He's going to walk into the museum of mummies, and he's going to do something. What did he do? But God, being rich in mercy. You see, when God sees a bunch of mummies, spiritual mummies, he doesn't go, hey, they got what they deserved. Let them just drown in their misery. No, his heart is merciful. He sees our pain and he wants to help, but that's not all. Because of his great love, you see, he loves mummies. He loves spiritual mummies. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Wow. You see, God could have just left us in our zombie state. He could have just left us having life on this world, trying to get along as best we can, having a little pleasure here and a little pleasure there, and locking us out of, in, of eternity because of our sin, and we deserve it. But that's not the nature of God. That's our nature. That's not His. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace. What does grace mean, by the way? We sing, we sang a bit of it this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a really wonderful person like me. Is, is, that, is that how, did I miss some words? Saved a wretch? No, I think you messed up. You messed up. You didn't sing it very well. We got to change that one, by the way, don't we? Make it more politically correct. No, saved a wretch like me. John Newton wrote that. He was a slave captain of a slave ship. He, he, he made money off of human cargo. He says this, amazing. Do you know what grace means? The way I try to explain grace is the following. What if you, as, as a mother, you, you have a, 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 one of your children, and, and you have one of those stove tops that don't have the flame, but it's, it's electric, and you see it turns red, and, and when you turn it off, it, it's still quite hot, and you tell your children, you know, when, when I turn off the stove, stay away from it. Don't, do not touch that where the burner was because you will burn yourself. And of course, the child is curious. So when you walk away, the child goes, puts their hand on, ah, starts screaming and crying because now their hand is burned. What do you do? Well, you could, if, you're, if, you're, if you believe in justice, you say to the kid, hey, kid, you got what you deserved. I mean, that's justice. You told them not to. You gave them the warning. They did it anyway. Justice means you get what you deserve. They deserve to get burned if they put their hand on a hot a stove like that. But none of you are going to do that. Why? You're loving parents. Now, mercy would do this. 
Your child goes and they puts their hand on that hot burner and they burn their hand and they're screaming in pain and you, you, you love your child and you don't like to see them in all that pain. And so you take your child in your hands and you go over to the sink and you put some cold water on it and you try to soothe that burn and maybe you put some ointment on it because you're merciful. You do not like to see your children in pain. That's mercy. Your heart goes out to people who suffer. But that's not grace. This is grace. You tell your child, don't put your hand on that hot plate, because if you do, you'll burn it. Your child does it anyways. They burn their hand. They're screaming in pain. You take them to the sink. You, you try to put cold water on it. You put salve on it to try to ease the pain. Then you say, please, let's get in the car. We're going to go to Dairy Queen and buy you the biggest ice cream we can find. That's grace. Do you think you deserve ice cream for doing exactly what your parent told you not to do? No. That's grace. Grace means unmerited favor. You get what you do not deserve. You see, that's the essence of Christianity. We are the recipients of grace. We get from God gifts and mercy and love that we do not deserve. We are spiritual zombies into which God has said, rise up and live in Christ. He gives us life. But that's only the start. Did you see? It gets much better. He not only gives us life, but then it says in verse 6, he raises us up with him and he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. So not only does he infuse us with life, he gives us spiritual life, he raises us up, then he takes us from the museum of the mummies, he gives us life, and then he brings us into his home and he sits us right next to himself, and then he turns us into the trophies of his grace. We become the trophies of his grace. And so when God wants to say, you want to know what my character is like? Look at him. That's, that's my trophy. Because that person was spiritually dead. And now they're alive. They're seated with me in the heavenly places. Someone has described grace with the following acronym. It's beautiful. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid the bill, and we get the riches. So God takes us from the morgue and the dungeon and the pig pen and the judgment hall, and he gives us life. He gives us freedom. He gives us cleansing. He gives us, phys um, um, he gives us forgiveness. He takes us from the grave to the emergency room, to the recovery room, to the throne room, to the dining room, and to the trophy room. That's what he does. Did you see that? It's all in the passage. From the emergency room, or from the grave, to the emergency room, recovery room, throne room, dining room, trophy room. That's what he does. Who's he going to show us off to? Well, he's going to show us off to the angels. You know, one of the things that people often say when someone dies, especially a child, is, oh, they're going to turn into an angel. Say, like, no, they're not. That's a demotion. That's not a promotion. 
We are higher than the angels. We are the apple of God's eye, not the angels. We are higher than the angels. The angels envy us. We will not envy angels. Why? Because we're the trophies. We're the living examples of the grace and the goodness and the wisdom of God. That's who we are. That's incredible. Philip Yancey wrote this. Grace means that there's nothing we can do to make, a, make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics or renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Someone wrote this. Someday God will lift the curtain and you will be on stage. In the audience will be millions of angels. Behind the angels will be the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. The floodlights will descend upon your life and underneath will be a trophy to God's grace and kindness toward you because you had a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's amazing. The great song says, Would we with ink the oceans fill and were the sky of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's amazing. You see, God has taken us from the morgue to the museum of mummies and turned us into trophies of grace. But that's not all. Because now we're going to a workshop. I live in Longmont, Colorado, and just north of us is the town of Loveland. And if you've ever been to Loveland, the town is full of sculptures. It's a sculpture capital of this whole region. We had in our church some professional potters, and I would see some of their work, and I could not believe my, my eyes how skilled their hands were. They would take a bunch of mud and turn it into a, a, an object of incredible intricacy and beauty. That's what God does now. We're gonna, we went from the morgue to the Museum of the Mummies and now to God's workmanship. And who is in the workshop? Us. Let's see what it says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest you, could, you would boast. You see, if we actually saved ourselves, or if some of us were better than others, we would we'd destroy everybody. We'd say, you know, I'm a little bit better than you. And once you start to say you're better than someone else, you've destroyed any community you can ever have. The beauty of being a Christian is this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a one of us can say we're any better than anyone else, no matter what we've done, because none of us would be in heaven were it not for the grace of God. None of us. We're all the same. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how much bad stuff we've done, doesn't matter, or how much good, either one. But because we're, we're, it's grace, unmerited favor that God has, has showered on us. But why did he do this? Well, it's partly because of his nature. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of goodness. He loves us. That's not the only reason. Here's the reason. 
By the way, when I was a child, and I don't know if you were a child, how many of you memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you've been saved. Put them way up. I can't see very well. Almost all of us, many of us. Let me ask you this. Did you memorize verse 10? I never did. That was not in our Bible memory. And I want to ask myself, why did we not memorize verse 10? I know why we didn't. Because we were afraid that people would add works to their salvation. They would misinterpret the Bible verse. But just after God speaks about grace, and check it out for the rest of the Bible, when God speaks about grace, He almost always will say, grace should leave you, lead you to a life that's different. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works, lest any of you should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has before ordained that you should walk in them. You see, we were not taken from the morgue and made alive in the museum of the mummies for nothing. We now are the God's workmanship. We are, the Bible says, we're, we're, we're clay. We were made out of the chemicals of the earth. And God infused life into us. And God has taken this clump of, 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 of mud and he's shaping us with his perfectly skilled hands so that we not only are trophies of God's grace, but we are his representatives here in this world. We are here to do what Jesus did. We're here to represent Jesus. We're here to resemble Jesus. We're here to be Jesus' ambassadors. We are God's workmanship created to do good works. I could give you a test. If you had to put together a mathematical formula of salvation, what would you say? Some would say, God's grace plus your works equals salvation. But that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible does teach is your faith, your, God's grace, your faith equals salvation plus works. You see, the works are not what make you saved. Works are the natural result from your being saved. Why? Because we are God's workmanship. Once we have accepted Christ, once we have been infused with life in Christ, we become God's workmanship. Our purpose is to do good deeds. I, one of the things that um, I wonder it seems to me that because I've been in the church a long time, well, basically all my 70 years of my life, but I, if, if I had to summarize my life as a, as a Christian, I would say the major emphasis of, of church leaders is this. Now that you're a Christian, here are the rules. Follow the rules. Don't do anything too bad. And so the focus is on trying to manage your sin. And if you're like me and you've spent your life trying to manage your sin, I hope you're better than I am because I've not done very well. It doesn't work. I think that if you focus your life on trying to minimize your sin, you will actually maximize it. Because the Bible tells us that law increases sin. It doesn't decrease sin. There's a better way. 
the better way is not to try to not sin. The better way is to follow the path that God has for you, the good he has ordained for you to live. And when you follow the path that God wants you to, guess what the sin does? It falls away. Here's an example. Remember from Greek, when you had to read the Greek writings of um, uh, Homer? Remember those days? And you read about Ulysses, the great sea captain. And Ulysses um, had to take his, 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 so, his uh, sailors around the rocks where the sirens, the beautiful naked women, that sang. And as the ships went around where the sirens were, the, the, uh, um, Ulysses knew that the ship was going to steer right into those rocks and they would be killed, but he didn't want that to happen. So he demanded that his, his sailors tie him to the mast and then put blindfolds and, and wax in their ears. And so as the ship is going around where the sirens were, were, were singing, Ulysses is screaming, let's turn there, let's turn there. But he can't because he's tied to the mast. He can't get them to steer and they can't hear the sirens and they can't see them. And so they made it around. And I think that's what we do with much of Christianity, and I think it's a mistake. We say, well, these are the dangerous places. Put some blindfolds on and put wax in your ears, and you'll be okay. No, you won't, because your heart has never been changed. But in other Greek writings, there's another ship captain. His name is Orpheus, and Orpheus has a different method. He also knows about the beautiful naked sirens, but he does not tie himself to the mast or use blindfolds and earmuffs. He gets out his flute and he starts playing a song, sweeter than the song the sirens sing. And so no one ties themselves to the mast. No one puts blindfolders on their eyes. No one puts wax in their ears because they're so drawn to the song that has been played by Orpheus they go around and, and are not tempted. That's Christianity. If we can stop focusing on blindfolding ourselves and putting wax in our ears, though we need that sometimes to protect us, and we could learn to hear a sweeter song, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's who I am. That's what we're here for. We're not here to tie ourselves to the mass, to go around with blindfolds and wax in our ears. We're here to, to, to hear a sweeter song and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So I leave you with three questions. Number one, in conclusion, have you seen yourself in the morgue? Have you been to the morgue? Do you believe, do you really understand that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. You see, that's the doorway to the Christian life. If you don't see yourself as spiritually dead, you don't need a Savior. You don't need Jesus. You can do it on your own. Oh, I beg you, please, go to the morgue. And it's easy to go to the morgue. All you do is you look into the mirror and, and, and look what you really like and tell yourself the truth. Have you been to the morgue? And then... Have you been made alive in Jesus? G.K. Chesterton, the great writer, said this, Jesus did not come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people come alive.
God didn't, Jesus did not come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to take dead people and make us alive. That's what he did. That's incredible. Have you been to the museum where God takes dead people, dead spiritually, and gives us life? And not just gives us life, he then seats us with himself. And he gives us a place with himself and he makes us his trophies of his grace. That's what he does. It's incredible. Have you been made alive with Christ? And then, listen to my words. Do you see yourself in God's workshop or his work shed? Did you catch it? Do you see yourself in God's workshop where he's molding you into something significant with a purpose and a plan and something good? Or do you see yourself in God's woodshed? Beaten, giving you spankings. I think that's how we view ourselves. Oh, God's only wish, interested in me is putting me in the, work, in the woodshed. No, he's not. You know where the woodshed is? It's called a cross. That's where God put Jesus in the woodshed to take all of our sin on himself on the cross. We're not in the woodshed. We're in the workshop. Do you see yourself in the workshop? And if so, what a wonderful, wonderful life. It's the way to go. And so, in this marvelous passage, we start in the morgue, spiritually dead. And we've got to start there. But then we go to the Museum of the Mummies where God has taken spiritually dead people and given us life. And way better than that, he seated us with himself and made us trophies of his grace. And then for what purpose? Not so that he could take us to the woodshed, but so that he could bring and put us in his workshop and turn us into people who represent Jesus in our world. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. And you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you couldn't really do any better than that. No possible way. It's, you're just brilliant. Just brilliant. There's no way else to say. Just it's a brilliant plan to take all of us and put us into the same, same place and then infuse us with life and turn us into trophies. We don't feel like trophies most of the time. But oh, Heavenly Father, as we leave this place today, may you help us just to be molded in your workshop into people of great purpose and value and usefulness to you in the lives of a world that desperately needs to know you love them. Pray in Jesus' name.